Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now listen to these powerful words. And you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then our text, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So reads the words of the living God. Father, I pray now that the weight of this passage would land on every heart and soul here this morning where we need to be laid bare. Lay us bare so that we can understand the immeasurable riches of God available in Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may grab a seat. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even, somebody help me out, a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. That's as far as I can go. That was written about 1823, and growing up, every Christmas Eve, our family would read, "'Twas the night before Christmas." The closest thing we ever held to family devotions was that. Um, and I actually enjoyed it. And being the youngest of uh, four kids, when I got older, old enough to read, I was the one assigned the responsibility of reading "'Twas the night before Christmas." And you know what? I actually kind of enjoyed it. Kind of sentimental, kind of Norman Rockwell-ish and all the rest. But when I became a Christian in 1996, serving in the Marine Corps, I kind of threw out the Santa Claus thing. Admittedly, through the years, I've kind of mellowed out about all that. Maybe it's just age, so I'm like, Santa, whatever, ha-ha, ho-ho, whatever you want to do. But I do want to make clear a major difference between Santa Claus and the Savior. Well, notwithstanding the minor detail, one's not real and one is, but aside from that, one major difference I do want to highlight by way of introduction. 
Santa Claus relates to us on the basis of our performance, whereas the Savior relates to his people on the basis of his performance, right? 1934, you better watch out. You better not cry. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. Next line. Uh, He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to see who's been naughty and who's been nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, let's be honest. If God gave us what we deserved, we'd be thankful for two lumps of coal in a stocking, right? Instead of everlastingly what we deserve, his judgment. But our God is an excessively over-the-top, lavish gift giver. And that's what we've been looking at in this three-week series on the God who gives. Week one, we looked at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Last week, we looked at Romans 6.23, which says, the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, Ephesians 2.8-10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For or because we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you have a handout in front of you, we're just going to we're just going to look at this text from four different angles. How we are not saved, how we are saved, what this gift of God includes, it's mind-blowing. And then finally, why God saves and why, why God specifically, I should say, saves that way. Okay? So first of all, how we are not saved. If you were to ask the average person, this was me for 26 years, how they can be saved, you might say, have their sins forgiven, be made right with God, the average person would answer by talking about their good works, right? And typically, they'll do one of two things, if not both. The first thing they will do is they will then give you the list of their good works, right? And there's a religious version of that. I would have said, you know, um, well, I was catechized. I was confirmed. I was christened or baptized. They might even say, you might even add Jesus in there. And I believed in Jesus as one of the many things that you did, right? And then, of course, there's a more secular version. You may not talk about church stuff, but you'll say, hey, I try to be a good citizen. I try to be a good neighbor. I try to love people, all of that. People, in effect, will talk about their own good works, right? How they think they're right with God. If you were to ask them, if you were to stand before God and he would ask you, why should I let you in heaven? They would then list their good works. Then typically, not typically, but, but, but often to, to buttress their case, to really make their case, They'll go from pleading their good works to comparing themselves to others, right? And sometimes they'll just do it generically. Well, I've never, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z, but I never did A, B, and C, right? They will compare themselves. Sometimes they'll even name specific acts, specific people, and they say, you know, I've messed up a little bit, but I never killed anybody. I never committed adultery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus told a parable that speaks directly to that. 
He says, two men went up into a temple to pray. He's telling a story, a parable to illustrate spiritual truth. Luke 18. The one, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector, a lowly tax collector. The Pharisee stood, and, and by the way, the text indicates he stood where people could see him so he could add to his good works, a holy man praying in the temple. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this chump over here, this tax collector. What's he doing? Playing the comparison game, right? And then he pleads his good works. He says, I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I possess. That's what the average person does. We're actually the Pharisee, right? We say, oh, those Pharisees. No, we're the Pharisee so often, right? We think our good works will make us right with God, and then we play, you know, the comparison game, which is a house of cards when, when, when the breath of God's holiness blows on that. Our text explicitly says what? Not as, not a what? Not a result of works. Our text explicitly says that. Now, you may be wondering why that's the case. I assure you I did. Because almost everything you get in life, you have to earn, right? You earn a living. You earn a degree. You earn a starting position. You have to earn, you know? And even when you, you know, you married people, you, there's a sense in which you earn the hand of, 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 of now your spouse, right? It just didn't happen. So we have that mindset. So you might be here saying, well, I mean, yeah, don't you earn your way to heaven? And the Bible says no. And you say, well, why not? The why not is because you would have to be perfect. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, just stumbles in one point, he or she is guilty of all. Imagine you're hanging from a high space, 100 feet up in the air, and you're holding on to a link of 10, uh, a chain link of, of, of 10 links, a chain of 10 links. You're hanging from it, 100 feet in the air. How many of those links have to break for you to fall to your death? Well, then other nine links held, doesn't matter. One link broke. Listen, you say well, you've never killed anybody. Okay, you've ever hate in your heart. Have you ever looked, loved, or trusted in something more than God himself for even a split second? That's idolatry. In other words, I'm just talking the Ten Commandments, right? I'm not even going to take time to list it. And the Bible actually has something like 580-something laws. So if you sin one time, you're guilty of all. George Whitfield, the early American evangelist, said this from Britain. He said, a man could sooner climb to the moon on a rope of sand than he could get to heaven on his good works. In fact, did we not see last week from Romans 6.23 that what we earn for our sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. We're born physically alive, right? But spiritually still born in need of a, of a new birth, a relationship with God through Christ. And then if we don't experience the new birth in this life, we'll experience the second death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. This isn't just like an obscure thing in the Bible. It is the message of the Bible. Again and again, it says we are not saved by our works. Galatians 2.16, for instance, says three times in one verse 
um, that we are not saved by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight, the scripture says. Now, I have to tell you, that was revelatory when I found that out. I thought, and I'd been in church, I was an acolyte. I, I played one of the, uh, you know, the kings in, 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 in the Christmas story. It was pretty cool. I got a beard, rubber cemented on my face and, uh, or something. I, I talked to my mom and let me keep it on until Monday. It didn't really stay on too well. I was in the church, and I did stuff like that, but that was absolutely revelatory that I cannot save myself through my good works. God wants us to know that. And the reason he's doing it that way, by the way, 9b, look at latter part of verse 9, so that no one would do what? Boast. So that no one would boast. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we got there on our good works? Don't you hate hanging out with like braggarts, braggadocio, all they do is talk about themselves. All they want to do is be recognized. It's all about them. Heaven would be miserable. <laughs> I was thinking about that this morning. Several years ago, we took up an, an offering to begin to, to finish out the building. And, and I can use this illustration because you don't know who I'm talking about. This person never became a church member, but they actually dropped 20000 And then they wanted to be recognized before the church. Like, no, fam, that's not how it works. Can you imagine that people wanting that recognition in, in heaven? It wouldn't be heaven. How are you here? Oh, I was a, I was a trustee. Oh, I donated for the fellowship hall or maybe use secular bragging. But it, it's all the same, right? No. If you think, let me just end right, point one right here. If you think that your good works can get you in heaven, you need to take a deep whiff of Isaiah 64, 6, which says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And um, I wrestled this morning. Should I just tell you what that means? And I'm going to tell you what it means. Think of, here's some translations. Use toilet paper. Use sanitary napkins. Wound, dressing, wounds that have dressed um, infected wounds. You say, that's offensive. That's the point. That's what our good works are to the nostrils and sight of God. All our righteousness, it says in Isaiah 64, 6, is as, is as filthy rags. From the crown of our head to the soles of the feet, he says in chapter 1, nothing but wounds and putrefying sores. So how are we not saved decidedly? By what? We're not saved by works. Now, second of all, how are we saved? My inner, my inner geek, I have a little bit of inner geek, comes out when I study the Bible. And if you were to look at uh, verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians 2, you wouldn't see this in our English translation. It's actually one continuous sentence in the Greek, a long sentence, long sentence. It's broken up for our reading, but it's one sentence. Now, What's true in Greek is true in every language that every sentence may say a lot of things, but it has a core, or as my Greek professor said, a kernel statement. And you, to preach the text right, you got to get to that statement and then build it out from there. And if you were to look at the core or kernel statement of the long sentence, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it would be found in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. 
And what's interesting is verses 8 and 9, though it's two or three sentences in most English translations, that likewise is one sentence. And again, the core or kernel or central or main idea of that sentence is, by grace you have been saved. This is huge. You don't get grace. You don't get Christianity. What makes Christianity incredibly beautiful and radically different from every other religion is the concept of grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is this. There's tons of definitions. I'll give you this. Grace is unmerited or unearned favor given to ill-deserving sinners. Ill, ill. In other words, we deserve the opposite, right? So grace is unearned favor given to ill-deserving sinners. Let me tell you about this grace. Two things about this grace. Number one, this grace comes to us through Christ because he's the one that paid the wages of our sin debt on the cross. Let me put it as plainly as I know how. He lived the life that I did not live, but should have, a life of perfection, and died the death that I should die, but don't have to because he suffered the judgment of God on the cross. Christmas, therefore, is ultimately not just about a cradle. It is about a cross. Now, I want to show something to you. Lest you think I'm just trying to, you know, put stuff in there and getting things out of balance and come on, can't we just talk about the cradle? Why do you go to the cross? From the very beginning in the Christmas story, what we would consider classic Christmas passages, they talk about the cross. Let me give you three examples. Joseph is engaged or betrothed, which is like um, engagement on steroids, Old Testament engagement. He is engaged to Mary. And they've been doing it right. They've been chased. They haven't, they haven't slept together, right? But all of a sudden, I don't know, how, you know, he finds out Mary, his betrothed, is pregnant. It's crushing to him. Can you imagine that, right? It would be crushing. It's devastating to him. The angel appears to him and says, Fear not, Joseph. For Mary is, has conceived a child by the work of the Holy Spirit. This miraculous thing we call the virgin conception. Work of the Holy Spirit. She didn't sleep with the man. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. Then, this is what the angel says to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. Text goes on to say, for he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Christ isn't even born yet. He's in the womb, and they're talking about the cross. For he's the one who will save his people from their sins. And then, and then because they were um, faithful Jewish believers, they took him, uh, I think it was on the eighth day, into the temple to present him to the Lord. You remember that scene? There's this old grizzled guy, that's how I imagine old Simeon to be. Simeon has been waiting for the Redeemer. Simeon, obviously a work of the Holy Spirit in his life, recognizes that this baby ain't just any baby. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he takes the child. I wonder what Mary did when Simeon took the child. But he takes the child, lifts him up before the Lord, and praises God. And then he says this. 
Please now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation. You get that? Before that, Mary sings this song. I think she sang it. The Magnificat, if I'm saying that right. What does she say? My spirit magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Mary needed a Savior. There are religions that say that she's co-redemptrix or that she plays a part in salvation. She was the, the means through which the Holy Spirit brought the eternal Son of God into the world. But she recognized she herself needed a Savior. I rejoice in God, my Savior. She sang about it. That's why we sing about the cross. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilt. Now the curse of death has no hold on me whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. We sing about this, right? This is the good news of the gospel, and we can't forget that Jesus showcased his power by rising from the dead. The proof that the, judge, that the check cleared in paying our sin debt is in the resurrection. He was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised again for our justification, that's what's packed into John 3.16. Somebody quote John 3.16. Who would quote John 3.16? That whoever should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Amen. How about Romans 6.23? Someone quote that. Romans 6. It's all packed into there. Romans 6.23. Someone give it. Yes. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, this grace that we're saved by comes through Christ, who paid the wages of our sin debt on the cross. Now, I want to add to that. The channel through which you receive this grace of Christ is what? The channel of, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, you are saved through faith. That's how we receive this gift. Gift. Now, people, you know, cut up and dice what saving faith is in all kinds of ways. I just want to make this as simple as I can. You know what saving faith is? Saving faith is this. You, you come to realize that you're a sinner. You're broken. And in that, you come to realize that while you may have sinned against others, and you have because we all have, the ultimate object of your sin or the ultimate person your sin against is vertical against God himself, the God who made you in his image. In other words, you understand you are a sinner who serves the judgment of God. And then you come to hear about Jesus, that Jesus <laughs> paid for my sins, the precious blood that Jesus spilt. And you believe, you come to believe that Jesus died. If there wasn't any other sinner in the world, he died for you. You believe he died for you, and he rose again, and you now say, I don't want my sin anymore. I want you. I want to be forgiven, and I want to follow you. That's, does that make sense? That's saving faith right there. That's saving faith. Now, what's fascinating and instructive is Paul is using future tense or past tense right here. Past tense. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What's he doing? He's encouraging the church in Ephesus, right? So they didn't get over, they didn't say, well, we're already saved, so let's go on to some other things. No, they fixed and focused and obsessed on the gospel. They, he's encouraging them. We encourage each other that, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, for by grace you have been, you have been saved through faith. 
But I'm wondering, is it past tense for you? Have you truly turned to Christ? And since you turned to Christ, what has it done in your life? Is there a change? Is there something different? Or do you look, smell, taste, live like the world? Then you might still be of the world. Now, Paul, Paul's encouraging you. He says, by grace you have been saved. And I just want to ask you, have you ever turned to Christ before? Have you ever, I'm not asking if you've been in church. I've been in church. I told you that story. I'm not asking if you've been through some religious ritual. I'm not even asking if you've been in a, plenty of people in a Bible preaching church have head faith but not heart faith. I just want to offer you Christ right here and now. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Not might be saved. You will be saved. Because it's on the basis of his grace, not your nasty smelling works. Two verses later, I love this. God is an equal opportunity savior. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. We could say there's no distinction between ethnicity or economic level or demographic or geographic or whatever. There's no distinction for, the, for God is Lord of all, bestowing his riches freely on all who call upon him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is his gift to you. Have you turned to Christ in a real, robust, biblical, authentic way? And if you have, it's because God has been over the top, lavishly, excessively gift-giving to you. He didn't give you what you deserve. Worse than two lumps of coal in a stocking, he gave you his son. Now, i got a couple more things to say because the text does. And this next thing that the text says should actually, um, there's actually even more to understand about how just, just how much God has given you if you're in Christ. So my third point is this, and I'm going to run. What does this gift of God include? What does the gift of God include? It says in verse 8, latter part, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I got a question. I want you to stay with me. I want you to stay with me. When he says, this is not, this is not your doing. This is the gift of God, right? This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. My question is this. What is, the, what is the this or the gift of God referring to? Is he referring to, uh, back in uh, verse 8, the grace available in Christ through which we're saved? So is, is he referring to the grace of Christ or is he referring to faith which enabled you to receive the grace of Christ. Does that make sense? So is the this the grace of Christ or the faith that enabled you to receive the grace of Christ? What's the answer? Yes, both, and, exactly. God both gave the gift of Christ and then he gave the gift of faith to receive the gift of Christ. Why would that be necessary? Well, there's a reason I read quickly verses 1 through 7, and I'll just summarize this way. 
The trajectory of verses 1 through 7 is not that humans are merely sin-impaired, right? Not merely that we were just sin-sick, right? We just need a little bit of help. We just need a little bit of assistance. We were, you know, we're sick. We're not dead. No, the trajectory of verses 1 through 7 is not merely that we were sin-sick, but that we were, what's the word? Dead. Dead. Dead on arrival, dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, don't think of salvation as God giving you a hand up. It's not even, you shouldn't even think of somebody, maybe they went swimming and, and they're drowning and, and, and they're trying to revive them and they're doing CPR. It's not even that. It's not even somebody who comes into the emergency room and, 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 and Doc Bryan's there and he's got to put some paddles on him and revive him. No, we didn't need revival, we needed a resurrection. In other words, we needed a miracle to be done because we were dead in trespasses and sins. To put it plainly as I can, spiritually dead people can't do spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 does not say, for the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their what to him? Their foolishness. So some people right now, it's just foolishness. Like, would you shut up? which I'm kind of saying that a little bit myself because I want to go eat, but I want to finish the sermon. You're scrolling away or what? Like, it, it's just foolishness. And the spiritual things includes, and I should say starts with receiving Christ in true saving faith. So what does God do? God gave the gift of Christ and then he gives the gift of faith to receive the gift of Christ. A gift to receive a gift. That's over the top given right there, isn't it? That's lavish. That's excessive. And it is a beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, I believe, no one can say Jesus is Lord but by Spirit. Now, people can parrot, right? That's why I don't typically lead somebody through a sinner's prayer. Anybody can parrot the prayer. Anybody can say Jesus Christ, people do all the time, right? That ain't saving them. No, no one can truly, in a saving way, call Jesus Lord but by the Spirit. How about this, Titus 3? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. That's what we talked about, not by works but by grace. And then it goes on to say, by the washing of renewal, what does that mean? There's parallelism going on here. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in somebody's heart. Now listen, God doesn't believe for you. You believe for you. But the Spirit of God works in your heart, enabling you to believe for you. Does that make sense? And we can't possibly sing about the cross enough, but you know what we ought to sing about more? This faith-enabling work of the Spirit. We're going to sing in just a moment, oh great God. It has this line, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys, but what does it say? Then your spirit gave me life. There it is. Opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Now, how does this work? That's a brief word on how this works. It works this way. You start feeling convicted for your sin. 
And if it's really a work of the Spirit convicting you, it's not this general grade common guilt that we all feel when we mess up, but a deep work that ultimately turns you to, man, I'm not right with God. I'm not right with God. Remember when I was 25, 26, God's convicting me. I, I couldn't tell you where, you know, Third Hezekiah was in the Bible, right? But the Spirit of God was convicting me of my sin. And that weight just wouldn't leave me alone. The weight began to hit me more and more. And that's what happens. It may last moments. It may last months. It may last years. But that's what happens. And if it, it really is authentically a work of the Spirit, it boils to a head. It lays you bare open to where you are like, I, I, I need relief. I need God. And you turn to Christ in saving faith. And I just tell you, that is a gracious work of the gift-giving God, giving you the work of the Spirit in your heart so that you might receive the work of Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, I ask any man to look back upon his own conversion and explain, well, how did that come about? You turned to Christ, yes, and you believed on his name. These were your own actions. But what caused you to turn to him? Do you tribute this to something better in you than your unconverted neighbor? No. You might have been what he now is if it had not been that something powerful from God touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. Do you know how much we have to be thankful for if you're in Christ? The work of Christ and the work of the Spirit to enable you to receive the work of Christ. Now, I close with this. Why does God save? Why does God save? Last week, we saw that the essence of salvation is knowing God that we might enjoy him forever. We should be joyful people in Christ. And it's going to be eternally expanding joy forever because, let's be honest, sometimes life ain't so joyful, right? Sometimes we download future joy by now. Weeping endures for the Night, but joy comes in the morning. If it says in Ephesians 2, he's going to ravish us forever with the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's joyful language. That's one side of the coin. But verse 10 gives us the other side of the coin. God saves us for his glory. God saves us that we might do good works for his glory. It says, for we are his worksmanship. When you hear worksmanship, you should think of a master artist creating masterpieces. That's you. Every human being is intrinsically valuable. Yes, totally depraved now since the fall, but intrinsically valuable. Every human being is made in the image of God. That's why when we categorize and look down at people because of various distinctions, that's actually a sin. It's a mark that we really are a fallen race, right? Sin has marred that, right? Sin has marred the image of God, but in the work of creation in Christ, this new creation, this, this relationship with God in Christ, this, this regeneration, he then, over the process of your life, after you trust Christ, is shaping you in to what he always designed you to be to reflect his glory. And sometimes that process is a very unpleasant process. Remember, art. You take a potter, and they take a a lump of clay, and they throw it down on the spinning wheel. Boom, right? And then the wheel spins. 
and they press their fingers into it, and they shape something. If that clay had nerve endings, that would not feel good. And then when it's formed, it's put into a kiln. I, I saw this morning in an article I read on this, anywhere from about 1,800 to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And then this glaze, which can be pretty strong stuff, is put on that piece of pottery. And then it's refired. In the end, it's beautiful. God is doing that with you. He is a master artist creating a masterpiece. We were saved for good works that would reflect the glory of the master artist. Now listen to me, and I'm closing. I am closing. We were definitely not saved by good works. Agreed? That's what Scripture says. But we were definitely saved for good works. Saved for like So if you just think salvation is, is a hall pass to heaven... You don't have it. Because we are saved for good works. And to know what these works are, I'm not going to read through a bunch of passages, but just, just read the Bible. Read, a, read the rest of Ephesians. He talks about how you live as an employer, an employee, as a husband and as a wife, as a uh, parents and children. It is all these ways and everyday ways we walk out these good works. And we do these good works not to appease God, but to please God. Not to get his love, but because we got his love in Christ. And God, it says, has good work specifically and strategically planned out for you to walk in. For you to walk in. For you and me this week. So what good works has he prepared for you in the context of your marriage or your family or your work or your neighbor? But seriously, we ought to think about that. What good works does God have in store for you this week? I want to end here, and I do end. Be a Dorcas. Be a dork. Dorcas is in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. And she is commended. Her name is Tabitha, and it says, which means translated, it means Dorcas. Thank you very much. Um, she was a woman, it says, full of good works and piety. So we ought to be Dorcases. Every moment we are not walking in good works is a moment that we've taken our eyes off the immeasurable riches of God in Christ. So the key is to be re-ravished by the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. May Christmas do that to us this year so that we live lives in which it's undeniably clear and plain and irrefutable that though we have clay feet and we stumble and all the rest, we truly are no longer walking according to the prince of the power of this air, dead in trespasses and sins, verses 1 through 7, but we are walking in good works, alive in Christ. This is the word of God. Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you through the word. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who, um, yeah, hasn't yet turned to Christ, that they would call upon Christ and find counsel to do so. And if they know what they need to know, that right where they're at, they would call upon Christ to save them. And then, Lord, that they would tell somebody so we could celebrate, rejoice, and walk with them. I pray, Father, for the rest of us, Lord, that we would be re-gripped by the incredible, excessive, over-the-top, lavish, gift-giving nature of you, our gracious God. 
gave us Christ, and then your spirit worked in our hearts so we could receive the gift of Christ. Ravished by your love, the love of God that opened our blind eyes, unstopped our deaf ears to see and to hear the truth of the gospel. We sing to you now in praise. May our soul magnify the Lord, and may our spirit rejoice in God our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.